The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Thursday, March 1st, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Back once more to the organizing principle of the Trump White House. So much confusion. Why does Trump do what he does? Lots of theories. Is it ego? Is it anger? Is it self-aggrandizement? Yes, yes, it is. But I have a unified theory. Trump is not a complex man. So let us look at the through line. Let us look at all of Trump's actions and see how they adhere to this explanation. You ready? He's there to make money. Yeah, sure, the ego, sure, the vanquishing the enemies. But to me, the consistent aspect of Trump's life, how he operates, how the White House staff around him operates, is not of a dictator or a strongman or a populist or a blowhard or a conservative or a buffoon or a showman or a Caucasian, though he is all of those things or wants to be, but he is fundamentally a kleptocrat. I may be wrong. It's just a theory. But as I look at it, everything he's done adds up to him adding to his fortune or the things where you look at it and say, well, that has nothing to do with money. What he's doing is removing obstacles to this ongoing project of self-enrichment. So all the fighting back and mishigas, as the Jewish people say, with the Mueller investigation, that's just to keep him in power so he can make money. All the threats with Kim Jong-un, all the ill-advised strategies and tactics on domestic issues. That's just so he could retain the presidency and win elections, and that will allow him to keep making money. Trump ran for president as a form of brand extension, a business move. He won the presidency, and he realized, well, I don't have to change that goal. And his whole family is oriented the same way. Jared Kushner's in deep debt to the Chinese on a boondoggle of a real estate purchase, 666 Fifth Avenue. Don Jr. just made a tour of India selling luxury properties, Ivanka's clothing line, continues on even without her. Just check out the list put together by former White House ethicist Richard Painter of all the ethics violations in the name of self-enrichment. Now you might say, okay, sure, yes, we know he's shady on a business level, but he's so shady on a moral or a policy level. He, in fact, is so much more outrageous on all those fronts. Yes. But I think the difference is on those fronts, he's sloppy, 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 sloppy when it comes to Korea, DACA, really every policy he barely gives his attention to. The Mueller investigation puts his foot in it because he's not adept at those things and he doesn't care about those things and he takes his eye off the ball with those things. So he gives away some advantages. He never does this with business. I'm not saying every one of his business moves is shrewd, but they are all buttoned up. He has so much more discipline when it comes to business. He doesn't shoot himself in the foot. He makes bad decisions, but they're bad decisions of a businessman, not I had no idea what I was talking about and I got myself into something that was way over my head. This is a White House that leaks everything. They've never leaked a tax return. They've never leaked, I should say, a tax return. He didn't want leaked. His business interests remain more carefully guarded than, say, Israeli intelligence agents working in Syria. Remember, he blabbed that program to the Russians. So yeah, yeah, it's true. He is norm-breaking on all fronts and horrible on all fronts. And in fact, you might think that he poses a greater danger in areas like threatening the press or deporting immigrants. But he only does those things, I believe, so he could continue making money. On the business side, he is aggressive, he is directed, and on every other front, he's bumbling and dissolute. Why? Isn't the job of president, paired with the fact this president already has a billion dollars, isn't that enough for the guy? 
Many of us like money. Many of us chase money. Trump is defined by money. He's binary. He needs to win. He needs to make you lose. And for him, money has always been the way to do it. So there is this criticism of Trump that he started off rich. So what does the money prove? I think that's telling. A lot of people who have a lot of money, a lot of billionaires, don't pursue the accretion of wealth with the zeal of a convert. A lot of them are people like Bloomberg and Gates, Warren Buffett, self-made millionaires or billionaires. They didn't start with it. So Trump's this guy who started off very rich as a millionaire, and he just wants to make more and more and more. Many in his position who start off rich use it as an opportunity. I mean, Trump's sister became a, a lawyer and a judge. Some use their wealth to pursue other interests. Trump's interest is wealth, was before the presidency, still is in the presidency. Is it working? Here's a piece of evidence that it is. So yesterday we had a slew of stories. Hope Hicks, the NRA, Mueller's expanding probe reportedly, Jared Kushner's massive loan from investors who met with him at the White House. Hicks got the most attention, but Kushner's was the most important. It is unconscionable. The guy meets with potential investors and then gets hundreds of millions of dollars to bail him out of this bad investment. I can't believe it. And yet in the Trump White House, it is totally explicable and, successfully enough for Trump, going under the radar. On this show, Trump loves money. Let's see what damage he's doing to the stock market. But first, that televised NRA meeting I referred to, let's get more in-depth on it with Jim Newell of Slate. Yesterday, Donald J. Trump turned the TV cameras on or caused them to turn on. That's one of his great powers as executive and told Democrats sitting around him and Republicans that uh, while there's no bigger fan of the NRA, he wants to essentially go against every one of their policies when it deals with guns and bump stocks and waiting periods. And oh, by the way, also to ignore the Constitution when it comes to due process. So this is one of those TV interviews that was a lot like that DACA TV session where he seemed to have an agreement with Democrats and then it was walked back. And if you remember, the walk back of that included the phrase shithole. But I wanted to ask congressional and political observer, in fact, not just observer, but expert and staff writer for Slate, Jim Newell, how we should look at what the president said about guns and how we should calculate what this will actually mean about the Congress doing something about guns. Hello, Jim. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. What was your initial reaction to those moments when the president chastised Pat Toomey and seemed to find common cause with Dianne Feinstein? Well, my initial reaction was that it was pretty funny and very good TV. I mean, <laughs> just him, you know, sort of flatly rejecting every uh, argument and, and procedural uh, strategy that the Republicans from both the House and the Senate in the room were putting to him. So it was very funny. But then, you know, I was asking aides around the Hill, like, what, what do you make of this? And they were saying, be very wary. This is the exact same thing that happened after the immigration meeting where he's trying to please, you know, the Democrats sitting right next to him because he wants to show off his bipartisan bona fides or just, you know, look like a deal maker. But then after the meeting, you know, his aides are going to are going to talk him down or he's going to talk to, 
you know, more Republicans on the Hill, and they're going to talk him down, and then they'll walk it back. So, I mean, that's that's the big takeaway, is how long does he stick to these positions that he laid out yesterday before, you know, his, his base gets the better of him? And so far, he hasn't walked back too much. You mean in the last 12 hours? <laughs> yeah, in the yeah. last 12 hours, which is longer than I thought it would be, you know? I, I thought it would be maybe three hours or yeah. something. <laughs> how quick was it with the DACA walk back? Oh, it, I mean, it was by that night, you know, mm-hmm. he was starting to talk about what he actually said and what he actually meant. And then you got the, you know, early morning tweets in the next morning about how he actually wants all of these really hardline positions in the same DACA bill. So, right. So it really is so similar to the DACA moment. Here are some of the similarities. A televised meeting between Democrats, Republicans and Trump totally throwing out his previous positions and seeming to side with the Democrats and them being giddy, as the New York Times described it, and wide-eyed. Three, the conservative base going crazy, including Breitbart. Then they called him Amnesty Don. Now they had a headline in gigantic letters saying that uh, Trump wants to take your guns. And four, the expectation that this cannot stand. And the fifth thing is the policy that he was endorsing is really popular with the American people. And I think that's really important for why he's endorsing it. You know, uh, legal DACA or DACA amnesty or legalizing those kids is popular among 80%, somewhere around 80% of the American people and some form of gun regulation, a little less popular, but definitely popular by a vast majority. So those are some of the similarities. I thought of one or two differences, but can you think of any? Yeah, I I actually did think he went a bit further towards the Democratic position this meeting than he did in the immigration one. You know, he heard about the Manchin-Toomey background checks bill, which would expand it to gun shows and online sales. And he was like, yeah, that's great. Do that. You know, And and that's pretty much what Democrats want. And he rejected the House Republic, you know, House Republicans. So what they did, they took this very narrow bill called the Fix Nix bill. Yes. Which would improve reporting to the background check system, but not actually expand what's covered by background checks. Right. They attached that to concealed carry reciprocity, which is the NRA's number one priority. And they wanted to keep those two things linked. And, you know, if you do that, it's not going to go anywhere in the Senate. So in the meeting when Steve Scalise, the, the House whip, insisted to Trump that, that they should keep them linked, Trump said, no, that's not going to happen. It's not going to go anywhere. Sorry. You know, I'm with you, but let it be a separate bill. You'll I never get this that. passed. If you add concealed carry to this, you'll never get it passed. Well, there are let other it be ideas that are being talked about that wouldn't pass I, I don't the House think, I don't well. think, you know, again, you'll never get it passed. So well, we want to get something done. Right. I mean, that's pretty embarrassing for the, I mean, that's the House Republican position. And he was like, eh, no. So I think he, he did go a little, you know, harder against his own party in this meeting. Another difference between this televised meeting and the last one, the DACA one, is after the DACA meeting, John Kelly, specifically a guy who was director of Homeland Security and is personally very right. animated by the immigration issue. John Kelly got in there and told the president, no, this is not what we're going to do. He even went on TV and characterized the president as underinformed and the president didn't like that. But John Kelly made it clear that this wasn't our stance on the issue. I'm not sure. Do you know if John Kelly is equally passionate about guns and gun control 
or even if whatever his personal feelings on the issue was, if John Kelly equates gun control with the overall direction of Trump's White House legacy policies on America. No, no, I think that's a good point. And I don't think that he it's as much of a pet policy to him as immigration was, as you said. And I think it's not just John Kelly, but Stephen Miller, who is the White House policy director, who was also a very hardline immigration guy and was sort of, you know, through whatever mischief dictating the White House, House position on that. And I don't know if Stephen Miller also has the same, you know, passion about guns or anything. So it may be something where you don't have the same, you know, hardline faction um, backing him off of where he wants to go on it. So at one point in the meeting, he uh, quite remarkably says to Pat Toomey, you're just afraid of the NRA, which is kind of, of all the Republicans to say that to, Pat Toomey is one of the last ones, but who cares about facts? I'm wondering, do you sense that he, he hates to be boxed in, he chafes at being defined in any way? No matter what he says about how great the NRA is and how patriotic they are, does he regard the perception or maybe his perception that the NRA is pulling the puppet strings of politicians as something in that category of a thing to chafe against? Well, I think he likes exerting his sort of um, machismo over Republicans in Congress a lot. Like, oh, you all are sheep. You know, you just follow wherever the NRA takes you, but I'm powerful enough. I don't care about them. You know, that's a point that really irks a lot of Republicans because they have been hearing in, you know, mainstream press and in liberal press for so long, you know, that the NRA just controls them and they chafe at that. They say, that's not true at all. My positions are are well-formed based on my constitutional principles. And here he was repeatedly, not just that one time to me, but like over and over throughout the meeting saying, you all won't do anything because you're all scared of the NRA which they don't, you know, they think that's a liberal talking point. So they were very annoyed by that. How much will, let's say Trump doesn't significantly back off what he said in this meeting. How much will that influence Congress? Well, I was at a um, press conference with Chuck Schumer earlier today where they put forward a series of proposals that were pretty much in line with what the president said he was on board with yesterday. But Schumer also said, you know, one televised press conference is not going to do the trick here. You're going to have to, you know, make speeches about this and push for this in public, and you're going to have to personally call and whip members, you know, from the Republican side. And, you know, that's in line with the reaction I've been getting around here, which is Republicans, you know, they they didn't seem particularly moved by Trump yesterday. They were like, well, we just have a policy disagreement. So it's going to take a lot of effort, one, just to keep this in the news and keep the pressure on, but Mm -hmm. also to, you know, really twist the arms on this. Uh, another characteristic that we didn't touch on on this gun meeting as well as the DACA meeting is it's it just apparent that Trump is extremely underinformed about things. By the way, it harkens back to the, that statement he made during the campaign about abortion when asked, well, if abortion should be illegal, what about doctors who performed it? And he kind of off the top of his head said kind of the logical thing, which is, well, then they've committed a crime. And that's just off the talking points of uh, the GOP or, or anti-abortion people. The same thing here. He's kind of, to me, said things that seem apparently logical, like why would you be able to get an AR-15 at 18 and not a handgun at 18? That's off the talking points of the NRA. So I'm wondering if you think that Trump's ignorance, I don't know, is interesting, reveals things, gets in the way of progress for him or Republicans or Democrats. Well, I I think it's part of why you can't rely on him to be consistent beyond these meetings, because he can just talk off the cuff, but then he gets sort of briefed afterwards about, you know, you have no support among your, your base on Capitol Hill about this. 
or they give him, you know, some new information, and then he, you know, sort of comes down into a normal uh, political position a little bit. It makes it easy to uh, manipulate him in meetings, and you could see, like, Democrats just trying to get him to commit to, like, anything in that meeting yesterday, and he committed to most of it, yeah. and they were pretty excited about that. But then, you know, once people get to him a little bit, then that's where he, he's brought back down to earth and, you know, the, the, the quagmire of normal politics. And the last thing is, I've heard some talk about coverage of this issue as being impossible and intractable is inaccurate, and it actually hurts the chances for progress. Did you sign off that it was all but impossible to get gun legislation? And do you think framing the possibility of gun legislation is all but impossible is damaging to the possibility of gun legislation? I guess right after the shooting, I did sort of think it would be nearly impossible. And like, I don't, you know, I don't consider it my job to, you know, encourage activists, like, you know, anything can happen, like just organize, like my job is just to give what I think is the reality of what's going to happen up here. So, you know, it still seems very difficult. But I mean, my mind did change once the Parkland students, you know, were able to keep the pressure on and keep this in the news for a while. So I I still think it's going to be difficult to get something really strong out of here. Jim Newell's a staff writer for Slate. He covers uh, Congress and the times they butt up against the president. Everything in Washington, really. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, thanks, Mike. And we wish to issue a correction in the February 22nd episode of The Gist... My guest, April Glazer, stated that the Center for Humane Technology receives funding from Comcast. In point of fact, it's a more indirect link. The Center for Humane Technology is funded by Common Sense Media. Common Sense Media receives support from Comcast. Now we can all get on with our lives. And now the spiel. March comes in like a lion. Actually, it came in like a bear. On Wall Street today, the Dow Jones lost 420, lost 380 yesterday. I don't care about one day's trades. I don't care about a drop of one or one and a half percent. But the president does. Remember, he gave out those stupid media awards and wrote ABC News' Brian Ross chokes and sends market in a downward spiral with a false report. That downward spiral, which was quickly recovered, was 300. The Dow Jones fell 300. So as you heard, it fell 420 today and 380 yesterday. The Dow dropped today because Trump announced steel tariffs, which means steel is getting pricier for all. There are more people in America who use steel than sell steel. So this is bad for the economy. You get to pay more for a car. You get to pay more for a car. You get to pay more for a car. This is 2018. And people who study economics or even have a glancing association with money think that tariffs for an economy like ours are a pretty bad idea. They're retrograde. Of course, Trump's ideas on immigration, race, gender, golf, Time Magazine, hats, hair, child-rearing, coal, policing, and Andrew Jackson are all retrograde too. Those policies serve him well. This dumb steel tariff actually goes against his brand. He's supposed to be the jobs president. He's not doing a bad job on that front, except for the steel tariff, steel and aluminum tariff. No real economists support it. If you find someone speaking up for the wisdom of the steel tariff, you know he's in the pocket of the aluminum and steel industry. You can tell by the shiny necktie made of chromium. It's just a bad and dumb policy. 
And unlike most of the bad, dumb ideas that he voices and then doesn't pursue, this is one he committed to. And it's also one that the people he respects the most are hiding their eyes from and saying, no, Mr. President, no, Maria Bartiromo is not going to help Donald Trump ignore his mistake this time. So what happens, as I said, we've just launched 59 missiles heading to Iraq. Well, you headed to Syria. Yes, heading toward Syria. So the stock market lost hundreds of billions of dollars today. Stock market goes up, stock market goes down. I'm not terribly apoplectic about that. But let us point out, that is Trump's fault. It is Trump's folly. It's fair to judge him against his own standard of cheering every gain. But also it's fair to stand him against the macroeconomic impact of this policy. Also, let's point out, don't know if anyone's talking about this. No one's talking about this. This might hinder his infrastructure plan. Yes, poor Trump with his infrastructure week curse. Every time they announce an infrastructure week, it just seems to crumble like so many poorly built exit ramps. Trump is to infrastructure week like Charlie Brown is to the football, like the Cleveland Browns are to quarterbacks, like Jennifer Aniston is to finding a good man, like Michael Corleone is to thinking he's out. Sad. Hashtag sad. So the Trump infrastructure plan, you remember it, that was for the federal government to lay out $200 billion and states and private companies will put in their own money and they estimate the total spending with all the multipliers they calculate will come out to $1.5 trillion. But a very thorough new study casts doubt on that. The majority of scholarship shows that when the federal government pledges a dollar to a state, a state will react by saying, great, that's a dollar we don't have to spend that we were going to anyway. In fact, and this was surprising to me, that states often spend less than they would have anyway if the federal government weren't spending at all. In other words, for every dollar the federal government spends, most studies show that it results in less than a dollar of infrastructure spending that would have been spent anyway. So this one study estimates that the $200 billion that the Trump infrastructure plan was talking about will not be septupled or more than septupled it might in fact be 10th. I don't know if that's a real word, but let me talk about it in real terms. They came out with this estimate that Trump's infrastructure plan of spending $200 billion will actually result in between 20 and $230 billion. And that includes the original $200 billion. Now it's easy for Trump to dismiss that one study I'm talking about because it was an Ivy League study after all. In fact, it was from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. And who's going to trust that place, right? I graduated from the Wharton School of Finance. I went to the Wharton School of Finance. The Wharton School is in Pennsylvania at Penn. And here's the point with Steele and why I'm bringing it up now. All of the models that that famous Wharton School came up with didn't even take into account the higher price of infrastructure if raw materials spike. Lots of infrastructure is concrete, but a lot of it is steel. Well, how much more will the projected rise in steel and aluminum hurt infrastructure? I'm sure the good professors at the University of Pennsylvania are estimating that very question now, and I urge them to stop. Don't do it. Guys, you're wasting your time. You're spending your energy on the imaginary. Why don't you just take that time and calculate the handle of the casino on Canto Bright from the latest Star Wars movie? Or the Brown Super Bowl chances. You know, something imaginary. So Trump has this bad policy. He's frustrated Wall Street. He's thwarted his economic agenda. And he's really kneecapped his own infrastructure plan. And if the implement used in that kneecapping 
is made of steel or a steel alloy that is even more expensive than he imagined. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname wonders if the outgoing White House communications director might market socially conscious candles. Hope Wicks Woke Wicks could work. Just senior producer Mary Wilson thinks that the outgoing White House communications director could possibly revitalize the careers of the Kingston Trio or Peter, Paul, and Mary. It's the Hope Hicks Folk Fix we've all been waiting for. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is sad that the White House communications director is leaving. Perhaps she could go into a business where she arranges photo shoots for Vatican-based celebrities, the Hope Hicks Pope Picks. The gist. We're suggesting Hope Hicks gets into drug rehab. No, not that she's on drugs, but forms a drug rehab center, especially for the drug users who just become monsters on the junk. You know, the Hope Hicks helps dope dicks with their Coke kicks. Peru, Peru, Peru. Thank you for listening. <laughs>